You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Innovations in Medicine, enhancing the medical community's knowledge of science and biotechnology. Innovations in Medicine is sponsored by Amgen, where pioneering science delivers vital medicines. For more information about Amgen, visit www.amgen.com. I'm Paul Raber. On the program today, we're talking about an important step on the road to restoring hearing using gene therapy. My guest, Dr. Jeffrey Holt, Associate Professor of Neuroscience at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, is a leader in that work. Welcome to the show, Dr. Holt. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So it turns out we shouldn't be worried so much about losing the hair on our heads. We should be worried about losing the hair in our ears. How how am I doing so far? That's correct. The hair in the ears, it's sort of a misnomer. We're talking about the sensory cells in the ear, but they're called hair cells because they have a little tuft of projections that look somewhat like hair, but it doesn't really have anything to do with the hair on top of the head. Explain to us what these do in terms of hearing. So these convert the mechanical stimulus of sound, these are airborne vibrations, into electrical responses that are transmitted to the brain. In those particular hair cells, there's a, that mechanical motion is converted into an electrical pulse? Exactly. What are the problems? How do these cells get involved in hearing loss? You're familiar with the Human Genome Project. Mm-hmm. About 26,000 genes were identified to make up the human genome, and in the field, we've narrowed it down to a list of about 100 genes that we think are crucial for hearing and balance function, I should add. Not just the hair cells, all of the auditory system, that is? Well, that means that mutations in any one of those 100 genes can lead to deafness or balance disorders. And was that a difficult process to narrow down, identify those genes? It's been a difficult process, difficult and and ongoing. This is work not just by my lab, but by the entire field of hearing and deafness research. So tell us a little bit about how you did that work, how you identified these 100, and what they are. What have you got in your basket now? So there's a range of different sorts of genes. Some of them that that we're particularly interested in are ion channels, which allow the flow of ions across the cell membrane, and that's crucial for generating the electrical impulses that are transmitted to the brain. Others are involved in synaptic transmission. Some might be um, myosin-type molecules, which move, cause motion. There's a whole range of, of those that are in the basket, and what we've developed is a way to be able to introduce the correct form of any one of those genes back into the hair cell. Now, do we have examples of patients or groups of people that have these mutations so that we understand the clinical picture? Yes, that's been pretty well identified by the geneticists, the human geneticists who study families and can look at the inheritance pattern. That's one of the best ways of determining whether this is a a genetically inherited form of deafness. Now, you're a professor of neuroscience. Are you a neuroscientist or or are you a, a geneticist, a little bit of both? I'm a neuroscientist primarily, and in particular, I'm a a neurophysiologist. So we really want to study the function of these cells in the ear and identify which genes are important for their function. And then our long-term goal is, well, what can we do to fix those genes when they're mutated. So tell me a little bit about, you know, where you've started and how you attack that problem with so many genes involved. The basic discovery that we've just reported in the journal Gene Therapy is to take human tissue out of inner ears of patients who are undergoing surgeries to remove brain tumors. In the process of that surgery, the physicians were able to extract the human inner ear tissue, and we devised a way to grow that in a dish. We can maintain it in a dish in the laboratory and keep it alive for for five to ten days or so. This is the tissue that contains the hair cells. Exactly. So this hadn't been done before. This had not been done before. So by being able to grow it in a dish, it provides a great source of, of human tissue that we can then study 
and investigate methods for putting genes back into cells or, or trying to restore cellular function. You know, this is just a great intermediate step between the work that's been done on animal models. Before we would want to put that in an actual patient, we can study it in human tissue in a dish. The cells only live five to ten days. Well, that's as far as we've pushed it so far. The method seems to be uh, pretty effective, and if we extend it further, my guess is that, that we can carry on for perhaps a few weeks. So does that mean you need new samples from surgeons every, every five to ten days or every few weeks? That's right. Whenever they're available, we will basically take them. This is inner ear tissue growing in a dish. What does it look like? It's excised tissue. It no longer has the nerve connections to the brain, obviously, once it's been excised. But it does contain all of the sensory cells and the surrounding supporting cells. Both of these cells can carry genes with mutations that would cause deafness. So both cell types would be potential targets for gene therapy. You talked about how the mechanical motion of the, of the quote-unquote hair is converted. Are the hairs operative and can you measure the electrical signal? In a previous study, we have measured some of the electrical signals in these cells and find that they're pretty similar to what we've measured from hair cells of a mouse. So it really justifies the work we're doing with a mouse because that's much more readily available. We can do a bunch of studies with the mouse and then make direct comparisons with the human hair cells. I mean, is it the kind of thing that if you clap your hands over the Petri dish, you can get an electrical signal? Not exactly. Because the tissue is excised from the ear, it doesn't have the supporting structures which would serve to transmit the vibrations directly to the tips of these hair cells. There's a lot of other architecture in the ear that, that serves that function, but once that architecture is gone, the cells are not going to be listening, so to speak. You focused on a particular gene with the warm and fuzzy name of KCNQ4, is that right? Yes. What does that particular gene do and what are you learning about it? That one causes a dominant progressive hearing loss, which means that if a patient has a single mutated copy of that gene, they will suffer from this form of deafness. And it's progressive, meaning that it's not present at birth, but is acquired through time. So by the time the patients reach uh, their mid to late teens, they begin to go deaf. And it also progresses from high-pitched tones down to low-pitched tones. They, they lose sensitivity to high-pitched sounds, and it progressively moves towards lower-pitched tones. Is it a common illness or a rare thing? It's one of the more rare ones. But interesting to you, why? Because it affects one of these channels, an ion channel gene, and it's one that we can readily study in the lab. We actually have funding from the NIH to be able to study that particular form of deafness in that ion channel. So we had a copy of this gene available. It was sitting here in our test tube, and we thought, let's try this one first to see if we can put the correct copy of that gene into the cells and cause the cells to then express that gene. Now, do you have in the laboratory a colony of cells with this defect that you're experimenting with? How do you do this work? So these cells do not have a defect in that gene, but the, they were extracted from patients who had hearing loss. So what it showed us was that even diseased tissue from the human inner ear can be targets or be targeted by our gene therapy strategies. So basically for each of the 100 genes that we've identified that we know is involved with a deafness, each one of those will need to be tested one by one. For those of you who have just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Paul Rayburn. We're talking to Dr. Jeffrey Holt of the University of Virginia about gene therapy for hearing loss. In your initial experiments, how do you get the corrective gene into the cells? 
So what we've done is taken a virus. This is a virus. It's called adenovirus. It causes the common cold, usually, but we've engineered it in the lab to remove the viral genes so that it doesn't make anybody sick, it doesn't replicate, it doesn't make more copies of itself, but we can introduce into that virus the gene that we're interested in, in the case of our experiments, the KCNQ4 gene. And by introducing that into the virus, we then put the virus onto the cells, and the virus would infect the cells as it does normally and cause the cells to then express the gene that we're interested in. The virus cooperates with the cell to insert that gene into the cell's uh, genetic machinery. Exactly. That's what viruses do normally. They've had eons of years of evolution to devise this technique, and we've basically taken advantage of what they've done as far as infecting cells, and now we can put in whatever gene we're interested in. Let's back up for a minute away from the details of the research. How big a problem is hearing loss in the United States or the world? Hearing loss is the most common sensory deficit in the world. And in the U.S., it affects about 28 million Americans. Worldwide, that translates to about 250 million. We're talking about a variety of things, hearing loss from birth with age in between? That's right. So there's, we can categorize hearing loss into two, two broad groups, those that are genetically inherited and those that are acquired over one's lifetime. And, and the acquired forms can come from overexposure to loud sounds, you know, when you listen to your iPod too loud or sit right next to the, the speakers at a rock concert, or various toxins. There are some drugs that can cause damage to the inner ear, as well as bacterial infections and whatnot. Uh, musician friends talk about being band deaf after having played with bands for a number of years. That's not a genetic situation. That's, that's some physical damage to the cell, isn't it? That's right. So that one would fall into the category of acquired deafness. And the, the ultimate cause is that these sensory hair cells do not regenerate in humans. So once they're gone, they're gone for life. Is there anything you could do from a standpoint of geneticist to deal with that acquired hearing loss? Yeah, absolutely. The same technique that we've devised here for introducing genes into hair cells, we found can work for introducing genes into supporting cells, which are the cells that are neighboring hair cells. Now, one of the interesting developments in the last couple of years is that the field has figured out one gene in particular, it's called MATH1, that will cause a differentiation of a supporting cell into a hair cell. So with a gene therapy strategy, we could put MATH1 into the supporting cell and hopefully be able to turn that into a human hair cell in a dish. That's a surprising and fairly amazing discovery. It is. It is. It's pretty exciting. Was it as surprising to you as it is to me that a cell like that would be able to differentiate even at completed stage of differentiation itself? It is pretty surprising. Hair cells are what we refer to as post-mitotic. So they don't undergo more cellular divisions. We think that they're at the end stage of their differentiation process. Same thing for the supporting cells. So this process, we actually refer to it as a trans-differentiation, converting one cell type into another. Now, what about the children who are born deaf or with hearing loss? How would you approach something like that therapeutically? Well, the first step is identifying what the gene is or what the problem is that is leading to their condition. Once we've got that, the gene therapy strategies can begin to be devised. What we're suggesting is taking the correct copy of whatever gene it is that they have mutated and introducing it into a virus once a number of issues such as toxicity and effectiveness are addressed in clinical trials, then that might be a feasible strategy for those patients. Does a lot need to be done to be able to identify which genes are responsible in people with those problems, or is that work pretty much been done now? Well, we have a pretty good idea. I think uh, of the 100 or so that have been characterized, most of those we are identified, 70 or so. 
It would be a matter of looking at the precise symptoms, the type of hearing loss, and, and looking at the rest of the family history. And then you could narrow in. And once you narrow in on a few potential candidates, the geneticist can screen those different genes to see if they carry mutations. That would be a fairly simple and straightforward process at, at this point. Fairly. There is another group that's also doing some research similar to this? Sure. There's a number of groups around the world who are interested in these sorts of questions. Has anybody gotten to any real clinical application yet? Not yet. You know, this is one of the few fields of human biology where there's really no drug, no good or, or effective biological therapies for treating deafness and balance disorders. That's all the time we have. We've been talking with Dr. Jeffrey Holt at the University of Virginia about gene therapy for hearing loss. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. I'm your host, Paul Rayburn. For comments and questions, send us an email, xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening to Innovations in Medicine on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Innovations in Medicine is sponsored by Amgen where pioneering science delivers vital medicines.